<laughs> I already fucked it. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Welcome to January's Patreon-only episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Usually we go path by path through the Lord of the Rings films, going one scene at a time. But this episode in particular is especially different because we are doing the Fellowship of the Ring extended edition scenes. Unlike most of the other Patreon episodes that we've done, uh, this is not going to be on one specific topic. We're going to be doing, even though I just said that we wouldn't be doing it, we're going to be going basically scene by scene through all of the extended editions. And I think I'm also really excited to say that this might be one where we will actually get some real fight again. So prepare for that and get your WWE film figures at the ready. Of course. Yeah, and I guess this is... Go ahead, finish. Sorry, finish, go finish. on, on. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think this will also be one of the few times we actually talk about the movies in our Patreon episodes, which are usually reserved for other stuff. But oh yeah, that's um, true. we made the extended editions out of bounds for our regular episode, despite how much Emily tries to smuggle in those sound clips. Um, <laughs> it's still a theatrical edition podcast. Yeah, full uh, theatrical edition slander on my behalf there. <laughs> Uh, so our spoiler warning is the same spoiler warning as always that we will be spoiling these films in full. Um, this one specifically will be on the fellowship extended edition, though we'll probably talk about all the movies and all the extended editions as we go. And of course, all the Tolkien texts, interviews, commentaries, probably not the Hobbit films. I hear those have extended editions too, but I have not seen a single second of any of them. Jesus Christ. That strikes fear to my heart. So Emily, I'm going to start with a question for you. Uh How annoying is my repeated attacks against the extended editions? (laughs) Okay, so I actually support this, right? Because with everything but this one, uh, the Fellowship one, I do think they are just like massively worse movies. Um, But I'm going to ramp up the angst and and, and fury at you on the extended edition slander for this one. Because despite everything that you are about to say is flawless. Yeah, and I will also say that of the... Extended editions, Fellowship is my favorite of them. Um, I don't know if I would say I like it better than the theatrical edition. Um, There's definitely scenes here I think are better than the theatrical versions of them. But I'm just speaking of like everything, um, you know, together as a total package, not just like the full extra scenes that are in this, but some of like the extended like takes um, that are just expansions of shots we saw before or whatever. Um, the other super annoying thing I tend to do on this podcast is say this very banal statement that I am a film fan first and a Lord of the Rings fan second or a Star Wars fan second. And what I generally mean by that is I care more about the form of these movies, like what they are as movies than they are necessarily as like a Tolkien adaptation or as a narrative. Um, and I think that really kind of is even stronger for me in these extended editions because there are shots in the extended editions, which I feel are just not finished to the quality of film that the theatrical editions were. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for that. It obviously makes sense, but because I revere these films first as cinema, those like shots that like stick out as not being as good as the rest, like really kind of sour me on not sour me, but it's like, Oh, I didn't like that. Um, especially when a lot of my love for these films comes from the fact that 20 years later, I still think they're pretty much visually unencroachable. Like they are fantastic and they still look great and they hold up to their own aesthetic. So when you see a shot, like I think, like I actually get excited to throw in the fellowship 
uh, extended edition because it's like, oh, I've only seen this one like a dozen times. I do not have it memorized <laughs> like I do the theatrical edition. So it's like it almost feels like I'm watching it new again. But then within the first few minutes, the shot of Isildur putting on the ring when he's attacked by the orcs, like it is clearly just not a finished so- shot. Um, like you can tell that the background is like basically playing on a video screen behind the <laughs> actor who's playing Isildur. Like they're not even like color graded correctly to like appear to be on the same set. Um, so it's just like stuff like that, um, that, you know, kind of bothers me. And then I do think a lot of the tension and the visual drama is driven by how it's written for the theatrical, um, edition of the story. Like when Bilbo first uses the ring and disappears, that's supposed to be like, oh shit, what just happened? Um, and that's something that kind of just gets spoiled not spoiled, but like I think it gets a little bit undercut by seeing a sealder use the ring first before that. Um, I think it kind of takes a little of the punch out of, say, Bilbo's disappearance at his 111st birthday party. I'll let you say stuff before I continue. <laughs> no, I mean, I think all of those are fair. Um, I think it's funny because I'm almost the opposite in some ways. I think I saw like the theatrical edition for the first time, but then immediately got introduced to the extended edition no, you know what? That's total bullshit. I saw the extended edition for the first time. And so I think every subsequent time, bar like a couple, whenever you watched it, I tend to watch the extended edition, even though I usually when I do that, I don't really make it past Moria without falling asleep. Um, But I think it's because like there's a lot of um, there's a lot that I think they kind of get right at the start of it. And even if it is unfinished in some ways, like that feels to me kind of more in line with like the things that I like about the rest of like Tolkien's writing as well because like things like the unfinished tales things like the Silmarillion are a bit like scrappy and and not totally refined in some ways um and I kind of like seeing that in the extended edition as well I think because seeing the places in which it is unrefined and was like obviously kind of just like shoved in by Peter Jackson at the 11th hour to do this edition that to me also is kind of revealing about like where he was trying to go with at least for this movie, because I think it, the the Fellowship Extended Edition is not really representative of the other two extended editions. Uh, and I will uphold the proud tradition of extended edition slander on this podcast by saying I think the Two Towers and Return of the Kings extended editions are kind of aimless and they do a lot of wandering. And I think they also are kind of really good at revealing where I think the screenwriters a bit lost the plot as far as like doing an adaptation of the Lord of the Rings book was concerned. But like the extended edition of Fellowship of the Ring, I feel like is the it hues closer to the book itself than than I think even the theatrical edition does. And and seeing those little bits in there, even when it's kind of just like shittily cropped together, is like, ah, yes, there was a point in time when they were going to be really, really faithful to this. And then it just changed from there. And I think that's like, it, it's interesting because it, it is kind of the mirror image of what you're saying, which is like, you don't like it for all of these reasons in, in classic fashion. I like it for all of the, those reasons. <laughs> No, I think that's fair. And the reason I think I like Fellowship the most of the extended editions is because it feels like the scenes in here were created specifically to expand the world as we learn from the theatrical addiction addiction, (laughs) edition. Whereas I feel like some of the extra stuff that's in Two Towers and Return of the King just feels like cutting floor cutting room floor stuff like stuff that they cut out just to like save time and they're like well you know this is the extended edition we can just throw it in we can add three minutes of Gimli making Jim Halpert face as he steps on skulls (laughs) like I will never like they're like 
you know, they do Houses of the Healing. That's great. That's exactly the kind of stuff yeah. I want to see in extended edition scenes. Or um, I think one of the reasons I kind of preemptively am mad at Return of the King extended edition, because it would have been so cool to do the scouring of the Shire yes. in it. Like that could be the selling point of the extended edition DVD, um, because for whatever reason, they held back Saruman from the Return of the King theatrical edition. So you didn't have to do that kind of garbage mash together scene they do at Isengard and they could have really just spent like 20 minutes adding a scouring of the Shire scene. Yes. I really feel they could have done that. Um, so, and these are kind of like smaller complaints and maybe I'm just making this up in my head to forward my anti extended edition agenda. <laughs> um, but the theatrical edition, like if you like did not watch it and just listen to it, like there are very few like silences. Like the score is very much kind of crafted to play all the way through the movie. And when there is no score, there's a very specific reason for it. Um, and if you get used to that, when you watch the extended editions, because of the extended footage and some of the scenes just being slightly longer takes, there's a lot more just kind of dead space in the soundscape of the movies. Yeah. Like the score doesn't kick in right at the moment it should. Um, like uh, I think a big one is in the two towers um, when uh, Treebeard emerges from like the burned down side of Fangorn and he he's like, Saruman, a wizard should know better. Um, and the score in the theatrical edition really just starts building there to that amazing nature theme crescendo as all the ends march. But like in the extended edition, they have to basically stop right there so Pippin can be, oh, what are those other trees doing? Oh, those other trees are going other way to go do other thing. And there's just this like very weird silence before that nature theme kicks back in again. Um, and it just like, it almost feels like the theatrical editions are operatic in a way that the soundtrack or the score is always there. Yeah. Or if not, then someone's singing or someone's talking. Um, and the general quality of dialogue gives it kind of a songness to the dialogue. Um, and then those kind of gaps or silences or abrupt, like just, yeah, abrupt emptiness in the soundscape really just stick out to me in the um, extended edition. And that's only because I've mostly exclusively watched the theatrical edition. So I, I'm able to hear those, whereas people who have been watching the extended editions exclusively for the last 20 years, they would never even bat an eye at that. And it's not like I can expect them to have that criticism either. Um, it's just something from my own experience. Yeah. Well, I, but I think it makes a good point, right? Because um, so I was I was watching Braveheart uh, last weekend, I think it was, forcing Connor to watch it for the first time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and and like, you know, it, it's a movie that I still can find fun, but it was really interesting how fucking painful some of the battle scenes were because there was no score underneath it and and so it's these long scenes of like and they are they are quite a bit bloodier than i remember them being um mm -hmm, and, and you mm -hmm. know i don't like struggle with gore necessarily but they're really bloody and there's like a lot of like dudes grunting and there's no score beneath it and it sounds unfinished and and like i know it isn't i know that is literally the version the only version there is there's not really a braveheart director's cut or god i hope not um like that is the one that everyone saw that is what they shipped as their final product and and it feels un it, like it feels incomplete and i think like the the tightness of the score in the theatrical edition of all of the movies of fellowship two towers return of the king like it makes it into the like perfect cinematic like piece of art that is the lord of the rings films and like the fact that every single bit of those movies every single second is so tightly calibrated literally down to the notes of the music is is so much of what gives those movies like the kind of strength that they have and like i it is like very legit that the fact that like that that like 
that sense of every single second of this has been not micromanaged, but has been like carefully combed over by someone who who really actually cares about what they're doing is like the fact that that is gone, I think, is actually a very good argument against the <laughs> against the extended editions writ large. So I think that's like kind of the bulk of my complaints, and I can't promise I won't complain as we go, but I'm going to try to keep it positive. You know me, I'm a generally <laughs> positive person. Um, so I'll end this with a, on a little bit of a positive note. Um, it's not like I don't wish the extended editions didn't exist. Um, I'd maybe begrudge their supremacy in the pop you know, the popular mindset, but I think we are richer for the fact of having these two versions and being able to talk about these two uh, versions being in conversation with each other. Um, because I kind of grew up in an era where the director's cut kind of for the first time became a huge deal. I really think Blade Runner was the first, um, version of that. And I don't know if I would call the extended editions, the director's cut per se, but it is kind of interesting having like two versions of essentially the same story in the same medium told by the same person, but the kind of changes they would make to it where they would add. Um, I don't think they take anything out from the theatrical to the extended edition, um, but maybe I'm wrong in that. Um, back in the 90s, um, before like, you know, we got woke about food, um, <laughs> you used to be able to supersize your meal at McDonald's <laughs> um, where you could like pay an extra 49 cents and you can get extra large fries and an extra large Coke with your Big Mac or quarter pounder. And I like having the extended editions as a one every 10 times I watch Fellowship or Two Towers or Return of the King, I'll watch the extended edition. So that way it kind of feels fresh. And then, um, you know, it's, it's just a way to kind of spice spice up my life, spice up my Lord of the Rings, constantly rewatching. <laughs> I like being able to be like, oh, I can watch this version of the movie that I don't know as well. Um, and granted, it does make me mad to watch that version, but it is kind of like refreshing to like have that instead of watching the same theatrical cut 70 times a year. Um, I only watch the same theatrical cut 60 times a year and 10 times a year. I watch the extended edition. <laughs> yeah, that's all legit. That is all super fair. <laughs> so life in the Shire goes on, very much as it has this past age, full of its own comings and goings, with change coming slowly, if it comes at all. For things are made to endure in the Shire, passing from one generation to the next. There's always been a Baggins living here under the hill. All right, so we're going to start where I guess the film starts with the extended Bilbo introduction scene. Um, there is some extra stuff in the prologue, as we mentioned, like the Isildur vanishing with the ring, but it's so kind of like minimal and feels more like chopping room. You know, I keep messing up the word for it, the cutting room floor um, kind of additions than an actual like scene crafted for the extended edition. But Bilbo's intro here to the Fellowship of the Ring is significantly different than the theatrical edition, which starts with Frodo sitting outside and then meeting Gandalf, whereas Bilbo here really kind of sets up um, the, the the extended edition by talking more inwardly about Hobbit culture, which I think contrasts significantly with Gandalf's arrival and introduction, where in the theatrical version, he's talking about the outside world and what they think of the Shire, but almost all of that Gandalf narration is not in the extended edition, and instead it's Bilbo talking about it from a Hobbit's point of view. Yeah, 
And I think this for me, like that, that inward outward distinction is, and I'm really glad you hit on this right up, up top, because I think that is the, the, the fundamental difference, I think, between the, the movies and the books. And, um, and I think it, it, the fact of that change is probably why I like the Fellowship of the Ring extended edition so much, because I think, you know, not just because in, in very literal terms, like the prologue of, uh, the Lord of the Rings is also concerned with it, Hobbit, one might say, uh, but is also very inward looking. You know, the the prologue of um, Fellowship of the Ring or the prologue of Lord of the Rings um, doesn't start with a history of all of the king's kingdoms of men and of elves. It does not start with a history of Sauron. It does not start with a, uh, you know, a, a history of Aragorn and, and his people and the fall of Numenor. It, it is concerned with hobbits. It starts very small and very inward looking and very insular. Um, and it builds up by not telling you by like leaving conspicuous gaps in what what it will tell you, it will tell you about the hobbits. It will tell you that at the the sort of borders of the hobbits, there were these other kingdoms, um, and these other kingdoms, in sort of general terms, were great kingdoms. But it will not tell you what made those kingdoms great. It will not tell you who who ran those kingdoms. It will focus <laughs> on the hobbits' relationship to it, and so and so by building up that really sort of small sense of um uh, of provincialism really in the hobbit culture and. Um, by the time we leave the Shire and then by the time we leave Rivendell and then Lothlorien and then after that Parth Galen, we we're really starting to get the sense that um well we're 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 not we're not in the Shire anymore, Toto. Uh and and the book I think is it, it takes its time to set that up for a purpose because it means that by the time you get to the scouring of the Shire, you know what it is that they are fighting to get back to. And you were also kind of rooting for them because that was when, in terms of your relationship, your emotional relationship to the to the the novel and to the narrative, you felt younger and simpler and more naive than as did our Hobbit characters. And I think bringing that back into the extended edition is really good because it allows you to kind of breathe and exist in the Shire for a couple of minutes in this sort of like silly parochial provincial world that is the hobbits. Um, and and you have it done on its own terms, um, on a hobbit's own terms. And and you get that sense of the passing of the baton uh, from Bilbo to Frodo in, in a greater way, because we actually like hear from Bilbo in his own words. And we can almost hear in his sort of opening um, introduction to, to these movies where uh, his sort of authorial voice in the Red Book of the West March is coming to a close, and Frodo's is starting to pick in, and 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 you know, sort of in comparison to Gandalf starting, Gandalf in the theatrical edition sets up um, the movies as they are, which is these movies that are concerned almost from the off with being epic, and their concern is using the Shire, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but their their concern is using the Shire as a way to set up what the baseline of sort of boring life is so that when they go and see the epic, it feels truly epic. And it's not about setting the baseline of what the sort of goodness and purity in the world is that that Tolkien uses it for to set up what they will later fight for after the epic book has been shut. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to look at it. Gandalf's almost like the usher who brings you into your movie theater, <laughs> whereas Bilbo's nice. kind of the librarian who kind of takes the book off the shelf and opens it up for you to the right spot. Yes, excellent, um, yes. Uh, one thing I really do like, and just to build off what you were saying, is that Bilbo really starts writing with Concerning Hobbits. Like, specifically, that's like the first words we see him writing, um, which is just kind of a very nice little bookend to the segment. Um Another flourish I really like is we get the Fellowship of the Ring title card here, as opposed to not when Tro uh, Frodo is sitting underneath the tree um, in the theatrical edition. 
Um, and here uh, we hear the fellowship light motif for the first time um, in full here, um, which I think is kind of cool. And it's nice that it syncs up with the title card. Whereas in the theatrical edition, we don't hear the full fellowship theme until the fellowship lives, leaves Rivendell, which I think is also cool. So like, this is exactly one of the spots where I feel like the theatrical edition did what it needed to do. And then the extended edition changed it up. It doesn't have the same dramatic impact of the fellowship theme first ringing out as they cross the mountains and into, um, Aragion. Is that where they're going? Um, I, but I do like that they put that music here with the title card just as something else, um, because we're going to get a lot of concerning hobbits slash the Shire music um, since they do extend the scene out quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, totally agreed. So also in the Shire, and this is a little bit further, um, we get a little more of an extended sequence with like Merry and Pippin <laughs> in... Uh, the Green Dragon. This is all after Bilbo has disappeared. So um, Frodo has already been left the ring and we know that the Nazgul are abroad. So this is all kind of that night where Gandalf returns and finds Sam trimming the verge and all that stuff. This is all kind of like directly preceding that. And we do get an extended version of Merry and Pippin singing the Green Dragon song, which is something we'll hear again in the theatrical edition at the start of Return of the King. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is great because, um, and again, I, I think, I, you know, I don't think this is great in terms of making a, a great movie per se, but I think it's great in terms of making a great Fellowship of the Ring adaptation um, because it does what Fellowship of the Ring in the book does, which is it takes that pause. It takes that many years long pause um, and lets you as the reader settle into the Shire where Frodo is in this position of something's a little fucking weird, but there's nothing I can do about it. And it's been years anyway, since this weird thing has been like primarily relevant in my head. So I'm just going to kind of settle back into an uneasy detente with life as it was. And, and you know, in a movie, you no one went into Fellowship of the Ring expecting that we would just be seeing the Shire the entire time. Uh, you know, the the actual prologue of the of Fellowship of the Ring tells us as much. And um, so we don't need to necessarily spend uh, the same amount of time there to understand that, like, this is something that we're immediately going to be getting rid of. But I like the fact that even as they're able to bring in this green dragon scene, what they're really doing is just adding that extra layer of this is life in the Shire as it was portrayed in the book even if not literally this it's more of that sort of ethos aesthetic of the shire and and it's again one of these kind of additions that makes me feel like if you know i disagree with every single interpretation made in two towers and every single interpretation made in return of the king uh, on like you know authenticity uh grounds but fellowship of the ring i think is probably the one where and peter jackson and co and i read fellowship of the ring and had um <laughs> about the same sense of what that book was about um which is a rarity. Yeah. And I also just like a little more time meeting Mary and Pippin early on, um, who kind of, I don't say are underdeveloped, but they, they definitely kind of emerge later in the movie because, you know, the start of the film is very um, focused on Bilbo, Frodo, Gandalf, and then a little bit with Sam. Um, so I just like being able to come back to an extended version and have Mary and Pippin singing. Uh, the other thing I really like, and I think I talked about this like way back in like episode four or five at the sign of the Prancing Pony. Um, I like like RPG style tavern gossip scenes, <laughs> like people sitting around a table having a beer and talking about news from abroad about strange folk and all that stuff. Um, I just like that kind of like subtle world building where 
people in the world are talking about what's happening in the world writ large and how it might affect them. Um, and then obviously it takes a turn towards the personal that, you know, Bilbo was kind of a weird guy. Um, I just like all that stuff. That's, that's the kind of scene where it just like, it feels like it's enriching the world by giving it a little more depth and a little more lived in feeling. Yeah. Um, and that's a scene that I'm just absolutely for. I absolutely love it. It's, it's a very easy cut to make for a theatrical edition, but that is the kind of stuff I like seeing in uh, the extended edition. Um, it just kind of builds on stuff I already like from this kind of genre of story. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing is that it does is it gives Frodo in particular a better sense of grounding in the community of the Shire because the theatrical edition, I think, um, uh, you know, it, not to its detriment necessarily, but but Frodo from the start of the theatrical edition feels like a singular character. He feels like a singular hobbit. Um, he's shot to look apart from all the hobbits. We don't really see him, you know, even when he's sending Sam off to dance with Rosie, which is this kind, it, which is this very sort of um, fraternal interaction, I guess, between him and Sam. Um, even then, he still feels apart from it all, like. Sam is his connection to the rest of the people in the Shire, insofar as we see it in the in the kind of early scenes of the extended edition. Um, in this one, we see Frodo very much as a part of like the the fabric, uh, the communal cloth of the Shire, um, and I think that's quite good as well because it doesn't mark him out as distinct from anyone else um particularly interesting or particularly sort of like um uh predestined for a heroic journey um than any other hobbit which which also i think ultimately kind of ratchets up the, the tragedy of his story in so many ways yeah and another thing i really like from the book version of this part of the story is how much of a communal effort it is to get Frodo and Sam out of the Shire. Mm -hmm. um, like everyone else in the Shire is basically helping them. Um, and you don't really get that in, in the theatrical or extended edition, but just kind of grounding Frodo and Sam into a broader community at least gives you some sense that, you know, they are part of this. Um, and then I can kind of just fill in the gaps or pretend like some of the book stuff that isn't adapted to screen kind of happen in the margins or something like that. Yeah. What else? Going to the harbor beyond the White Towers. Grey Haven. They're leaving Middle-earth. Never to return. I don't know why. It makes me sad. So the second big scene we're going to talk about is the passing of the Wood Elves, um, which I will say I really like the sentiment in this scene. Um, it falls into that category I mentioned earlier with the Isildur stuff where there's a little too much sheen on the elves. Mm -hmm. I can tell it's just not quite the finished shot that it would be if it made it into um, the extended edition um, or sorry, the theatrical edition. But I do really like Frodo and Sam like taking a moment to observe them, to talk about how it makes them feel, even if they can't you know, quite put words to it. I think it's a very touching scene. Um, again, I just wish the visuals got a little bit more of a pass uh, by the post-production team or the post-extended production team. I don't know exactly how that worked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's also like, I think um, there's something in this for me, and I really wish it had made it to the theatrical edition because I think it, the fact that Sam and Frodo are sitting there um, attempting to articulate the inarticulable, I think is good because it introduces a level of magic immediately to this film that 
um, I think rapidly fades. It, it's not to say that there's no magic in this move, these movies at all. There, there definitely is, but it's it's a kind of harder, more scientific magic. And I think, um, it, and 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 the further along we get into these movies, the the less magic there is really. Until the kind of only magic that exists is the magic of of Sauron, and and that is defeated. And obviously, that that's part of the film's thesis is sort of like the you know we must overcome the kind of days of magic and 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 enter the the prosaic days of of uh, of men, I guess. Um, in order to sort of progress as a world. And and that's part of its thesis that, you know, I disagree with. But I like that they have these characters talk about seeing the beauty of the elves and, and the sort of ancient ma- majesty, whatever, of the elves, and, and openly admit to not being able to explain how they feel in a, in a movie where, by and large, with the exception of Frodo, who, who is in unique circumstances, people are very good at um, articulating how they feel. Um, and they are very good at looking sad when they're sad and scared when they're scared. And, and to have this moment of these things are so beautiful and incredible that I don't even know how I feel about it sets up the sense of awe and, and, and magical surrealism, I guess, um, that I feel like is super important to, uh, to the book. Um, certainly like in, and you know, some of my favorite chapters are like on the Barrow Downs and fellowship, um, and, and on the Barrow Downs is, is so concerned with giving you the sense of like, there is, you can see magic before your eyes, but you can't touch it no matter how you hard you try. And when you touch it, things go wrong. And, and having that sense of that understanding of magic in the film is a difficult thing to do, but they managed to do it in the extended edition. And God, I wish it made it into the theatrical. The other thing I like about this is um, there's a little bit of lip service paid in the theatrical edition to Sam being interested in the elves. Um, like when Aragorn says he's leading them to Rivendell, he's like, you hear that, Master Frodo? We're going to see the elves. <laughs> um, and then when they're actually at Rivendell, Frodo's like, I thought you always wanted to hang out with the elves, Sam. Um, and those are nice things in the theatrical edition. And I could fill in the blanks and, oh, hey, Sam probably likes the elves. But I feel like those two lines of dialogues may have benefited from a scene like this earlier that kind of clearly establishes Sam's fascination <laughs> with the elves. Yeah. Um, so I, I think this would be a scene that maybe if there was room, I don't know. I don't think I would cut anything out of Fellowship of the Ring, but this is one I think is small enough. I think it's only like a minute extended edition scene um, that I could have wanted to see snuck in uh, to the theatrical edition. Yes, I would cut out all of Aragorn and Arwen scenes uh, to add this back in. So there is my heavy handed cut for that. <laughs> yeah, I am absolutely not endorsing that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, but speaking of Aragorn and uh, Arwen, I put in my notes Baron and Luthien here, and I honestly can't remember why. <laughs> Is there some reason I would have put that in here, Emily? I was sitting here going, God, do they talk about Baron and Luthien in this? I don't think they do. I'm, but... Now I'm like, because oh, sorry. Um, I actually know what this is about, um, because I didn't get a sound clip of when Aragorn meets them after the prancing oh. pony, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Frodo wakes. So, uh, you want to just transition over to that scene? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. <laughs> uh, so, um, if our brain dead uh, sputtering there didn't uh, let you know what we're talking about. <laughs> Um, after the four hobbits end up meeting up with Aragorn at the end of the Prancing Pony and escaping the Nazgul there, um, there is a scene where they're resting out in the wild overnight and, uh, Aragorn is singing, what is it? The Lay of Luthien. Yeah. Um, I- I'll give it to Emily here in a sec just to explain it all. Um, and then Frodo wakes up, um, kind of hears him ask, you know, who are you singing about? Because he kind of understands, um, the elfish that, uh, Aragorn is singing in and of course Baron and Luthien are meant to kind of be a parallel to Aragorn and Arwen as well so 
Take it away, Emily. Oh, Hurl. Um, so it's funny because I hate, I love and hate this scene, and I go back and forth on loving and hating it as well because um, is the lay of Lathian. So great, awesome story from uh, the Silmarillion, um, or the the lay of Lathian. Luthian, Lathian. Fuck, uh, it's brilliant. Um, it's one of the the sort of coolest kind of stories in the legendarium in a lot of ways, even though I am not at all compelled by Baron and Luthien, I do not give a shit. Um, but, um, the, the story is kind of one of these stories that's filled with like, it's, it's filled to be like legend. And I think the best way that I can explain it for anyone who hasn't read it is, um, the way that the, the, the David Lowry's the green Knight movie that came out a couple of years ago, the way that that handles narrative is the right, like the way that that makes you feel when you're watching that, that narrative, that's how the, story the tale of baron and luthien should should make you feel um and and it's really profound and i think it's a it's a great shining moment for for luthien um and and really sets up um not just like the power of uh the men uh generally as in like lowercase men but like the power of the men uh and luthien is herself not a, a man but but she falls in love with the man and and um their story really helps to explain why there is this horrible, horrible, horrible tragedy for these immortal beings falling in love with mortals, but also um, what kind of mortal it would take um, to win the heart of an immortal. Um, and, you know, Luthien is objectively the cooler of the two, but it's not like Baron is uncool. Um, he is like a very Han Solo-y kind of figure. Um, and I, you know, not that I don't love like Princess Leia, but I think like you'd really have to power up Princess Leia a lot to get to the point of Luthien. Anyway, so it gives a lot of really good context for for why um, Arwen's choice in in the books and in the movies is so significant. And, and also, I think it also helps to, to kind of add a lot of characterization in one way or another towards towards Aragorn. Um, so all of that uh, doesn't matter for the movie because the way that Aragorn explains who the fuck Luthien is is by going, she died. Um, which is like, it would be like a, some kid asking you who like Marie Curie is and your answer to mm -hmm. that is she died of cancer. Like, <laughs> I, like, sure. I mean, not not wrong, but like really missing the spirit of the question there. Um, and, and I think it also is like, it's so early 2000s sad boy like he's too pressed he's too heartbroken by the thought of uh Liv Tyler which to be fair same uh to like explain anything in more than a couple words so he's just gonna mumble something vaguely sad sounding and then you're gonna hear like evanescence in the background and it's so like old world kind of misogyny to just like boil Luthien down to her death which is in some ways like the least important part of her um and and so I sometimes hate it because I'm like god it's just pure 2000s I hate it uh and in other ways I love it because I'm like good fuck Aragorn he is a misogynist and his entire relationship with Arwen is based off of both of them desperately trying to be people they're not and and it's based off of Aragorn desperately trying to be some combination of the Sealder and of uh, Elendil and of Baron and Arwen who has uh, nothing to recommend her, no deeds to her name, nothing to do, desperately clinging to this hope and this fantasy of becoming this well-remembered queen of something um, so that she can one day hope to 
kind of live up to the, the ever-present shadow of Luthien in her life because Luthien is her, her great-grandmother. Um, and, and there's that kind of inherent shallowness and, and kind of misery to their relationship to one another. Um, and so I love it for that reason. I love it that 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 the movie Aragorn is only ever able to articulate Luthien in those terms. But I'm also like, I have to turn that part of my brain off and be like, but when they were writing it, they definitely didn't mean it like that. So like, it ain't that deep, bro. I might be mixing up my uh, production notes here, but I feel like there's something, and it might be this scene where it was almost all Vigo, um, like kind of like pushing forward and like wanting to sing the song and like learning the song all on his own yeah. or the lay all on his own, um, which I think is cool. And if you listen to the complete score of The Lord of the Rings, uh, Vigo Mortensen will, uh, his, will lend his uh, vocal talents to this track there. <laughs> um, you will actually hear him performing it, much like Ian McKellen does The Road Goes Ever On and On yeah. um, earlier in the soundtrack. Yeah. And Miranda Otto in, uh, in Two Towers. Uh, I think she's by far the, the, the most capable <laughs> singer of a lot of them. Not to say that Viggo Mortensen doesn't do a perfectly good job at mumble singing, mumble coring uh, a f- an epic fantasy song, but uh, it's. Uh, I think it's not... You won't be playing it as a tune to get ready for a night out, is I think the nicest way to put that one. <laughs> oh, God, he could be like the lead singer of The National or something <laughs> like that. I think he would be great for oh it. Oh, my God. Horrifying. <laughs> a dream. I saw the eastern sky grow dark. But in the west, a pale light lingered. A voice was crying. Your doom is near at hand. Isildur's bane is found. Before has any voice uttered the words of that tongue here in Imladris. Do not ask your pardon, Master Elrond, for the black speech of Mordor may yet be heard in every corner of the West. The ring is altogether evil. All right, so now we're going to hop over to Rivendell when the Fellowship have arrived. Um, there's a couple extended edition sequence here. Uh, sorry, a couple extended edition scenes here. Um, first, we'll start before the Council of Elrond. We get an extension of Boromir and Aragorn meeting in the wake of Narsil. I feel like that's the wrong word to use, but um, basically it's more of a direct like introduction between the two. Um, Aragorn does not say his name. He's a dick about it. He just says he's a friend of Gandalf. Um, but they do have like some direct dialogue where... Um, as in the theatrical edition, Boromir kind of is coming and looking at all the museum exhibits. Um, and then when he notices Aragorn's there creepily watching him, he like drops the sword and gets the fuck out. <laughs> um, here they have a little bit more of an interaction. Um, I know you don't love this scene in any version, no. I believe, Emily. No, this is the devil scene. I, it's just like, uh, even if, right, even my like obsessive hatred of Aragorn, like aside, 
Aragorn is is annoying. Like he is definitely annoying in like even if you do accept that like monarchy is good, that like Aragorn in particular is cool as shit, which he obviously is. Like he's still very annoying. Like who introduced like who in an introduction between two people doesn't give their name? Like what a dick. Um, and also like why does he spend all this time like kind of like edging everybody about whether or not like he's gonna be the king? Like dude, you're gonna be the king. Relax. This is ridiculous anyways he's annoying and um, but i think there's like something really funny in how like he gets half of a villain's introduction in brie um where like there's about three seconds where we're meant to be like oh this guy could be a bad guy and then it's immediately revealed that he's cool as shit um and boromir gets a villain's entrance from the start and not even like a like a heavy hitter villain's entrance. He's made to look like the dumbest evilest bitch you ever did see. <laughs> and I'm like, why is this necessary? Like, we need to be rooting for his redemption. And like, also, Boromir is really not that bad. And also, Aragorn started it. So mods, mods, mods. <laughs> um, I think that leads into the next thing I want to complain about, uh, which is actually at the Council of Elrond proper. Uh, when Frodo brings forth the ring, um, as soon as he, he puts it down, uh, Sean Bean, Boromir gets up and he starts uh, reciting kind of the dream that he had <laughs> about Isildur's Bane, which is something I'm OK with. Like, you know, bringing that into the adaptation is cool. But he immediately like stands up and just starts walking over to the ring to pick it up. And I don't really love it. Again, I feel like it's one of the things where clearly the story was built for the theatrical edition. So like you slowly built up to like Boromir going for the ring to have him just kind of get up and try to grab it in front of Frodo and everything else right here just kind of feels out of place to me. Um, I don't remember if that's how it is even in the text. I don't think it is, but I could be wrong. No. Um, I'm not an expert on the books here. Um, but I just feel like, like you said, it's too villain, too hard, too fast for no real payoff, I see, um, when the story does a good job, in my opinion at least, of building his kind of little villainy from picking up the ring on Karadharas and then eventually confronting uh, Frodo at uh, Parth Galen. Um, like all that kind of is properly paced to me. So him just kind of standing up here as soon as he sees the ring and going for it just kind of doesn't work for me. No, it, it, it's funny because I feel like in some ways um, this kind of addition um, makes it feel like they're overcorrecting because I, I feel like it's like they saw the theatrical edition went oh, we made Aragorn look too ambiguous there for like five seconds. So now we need to make Boromir look even worse for even longer to justify that they are like not the same people. And I don't think that that's necessary at all. Like, I think it'd be really cool to bring in, like it is really cool to bring in uh, the the whole Isildur's Bane poem, dream poem thing. Um, not like <laughs> this. I also, as I will keep saying until the day I die, if they wanted to do those stupid fucking Osgiliath scenes, now would have been the time to do it because in the books you have Boromir being like, um, Elrond, why are you mouthing off to me? I just rode, uh, I just walked for 147 days after losing my horse 500 miles south of here. Um, after, uh, we heard a dream, this is where he would do like the Isildur's Bane sort of monologue thing. Uh, and then, um, I, when the day on the day that I left, when everything was fucked, uh, we just fought and lost a battle, uh, the worst battle that we've ever lost. And then you cut to Osgiliath 
and you show Boromir and Faramir being really cool at the Battle of Osgiliath, which also includes them getting to blow up a bridge, something I'm sure this movie would have loved to have done. And then you can cut back and you've got like your cool little high intensity battle scene. You've introduced us to Gondor. You've introduced us to Hurl Faramir. Um, you've got Boromir looking strong and noble because he's obviously fighting on the good side, which makes his collapse uh, more desperately sad than it is. Um, and you've also got a, a, a visible reason for why Boromir might be so affected by the ring and its draws. And instead, at like, and instead we just get some of the weirdest shit. And I'm like, I don't like that. This would have been the moment to do like quote unquote dumb jock action stuff. And it would have been phenomenal. Yeah. I, I second all of that. Um, I'd even be okay with the compromise with the film versions that we did get where they have Boromir talk about that escape and his ride to, uh, Imladris here. And then if they do a version of that two tower extended edition scene, um, to have it more specifically tied to that event that you were just talking about. Um, cause that way then the various extended edition trilogies start getting linked to each other yeah. where an extra scene in one builds to an extra scene in the next one. Um, and I think that's, you know, I don't think the, extended edition trilogy is not like coherent but i feel like there's nothing done specifically to like build on one extended edition to the next uh extended edition if that makes sense yeah and, and i think that's also like because i feel like this extended edition is responding more openly to the book and i think you're right to say that the two towers and return of the king is really just cramming in the shit that ended up on the cutting room floor so one thing I, I'll just say I'm okay with that immediately follows is that when Boromir um, does all this stuff and goes for the ring, uh, Gandalf gets up and starts talking in the yeah. black speech. Um, you know, everyone like instantly has a migraine, which I really love. <laughs> um, the screen goes dark. Um, and then we even get to hear Elrond say Imladris, which I don't think is actually ever said in the script otherwise in the theatrical edition of the trilogy. Um, so if you're really looking to hear like the Elvish names or just the other names for stuff, um, this is a good vehicle for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's also it's also really cool, I think, because we saw a little bit of spooky Gandalf and in, uh, in, in Bag End uh, and, and, and that's cool. But like. Spooky to a Hobbit is one thing, and and if the first half of this movie really does anything, it's setting up a sense of scale. So we go from, you know, we spend this half of the movie understanding what it feels like to see the world at, at a Hobbit's eye level. Um, and, and so spooky for a Hobbit, as we learn at, at the sort of default position, is not actually spooky for the rest of the world. Um, and, and I think having it be slightly no i'm not to say this is a weakness of the extended edition it certainly isn't but like having gandalf be spooky and bag end doesn't necessarily answer the question of is gandalf spooky to everyone else and here having him stand up and whip this shit out answers the question very clearly and it is yes he is very spooky to everybody else and he is spooky enough not just for the wider world but spooky enough to to scare the elves um, and to really badly scare the elves and that starts to give us i think a bit of a better sense of um not just what kind of creature gandalf is in terms of like his like op levels or whatever but also gives us a sense of like how damaging um and and how um how unnerving uh, the loss of knowledge uh, of uh, around things like sauron and morgoth and what they have done to to, to middle earth is to 
the the various free peoples of Middle Earth. Like these people, if they were more familiar with these words and and had kind of steeled themselves against it, might be in a better position to fight back against Sauron. But because they haven't, um, they're shit out of luck in having to strap a ring to a chicken and send it running to Mordor. Um, and that <laughs> I think like it would have been great to see that in the the, the theatrical edition. I think uh, you really come out ahead with this one because I think this also portrays Gandalf a little bit as the dick that you wanted to see him be yes. um, because he's like, Elrond, I will not apologize for what I just did. I just had to kind of do it, um, which I think is a little more of that book version of Gandalf that we've discussed at length here. Um, yeah, so I really like this moment. Um, I'm obviously, of course, still partial to the theatrical edition because I really do like Frodo putting the ring down on the pedestal and then doing the smash close-ups of everyone around the pedestal and like hearing the ring whisper to them um, before Baragorn, uh, uh, <laughs> before Boromir. Um, so it is true. And then going into it is a gift thing. Um, I just think like the theatrical edition, like this is like one of those like one perfect scenes, like it's just perfectly paced. So um, I like this edition. I just don't know where I would fit it into the theatrical edition without the Boromir stuff that I don't like before it. Yeah. Um, but again, that's just me. I'm not saying that should be anyone else's opinion. Yeah. No, I, I think it's fair. Um, so we, we got a couple more things while we're here in Rivendell. Um, First is um, we get an, another scene with Aragorn and Narsil and Elrond talking to him about it. Um, I'm very whatever about this. Um, I kind of just like the movie versions of ignoring the sword until the end. It's yeah. like, okay, now you actually need the weapon you need. Um, we'll give it to you then as opposed to Aragorn being a little bit, you know, a little nit about it um, all the way through the three movies. Um, maybe that would be better aragorn characterization from your point of view emily eh. but i like just kind of not having to deal with the sword until it actually matters for something um and i, I don't really feel the need to build it up any further after that first scene with boromir and um aragorn i think that sets up the sword as being important and almost mystical in its own right uh well enough for me yeah and i think this is a bit this feels a bit uh, Star Warsy. It's a bit like this was your father's weapon from a more civilized age, and like that's fine. It's great for Star Wars. Um, it's not. I don't need it in Lord of the Rings. Like, like the the fact of these swords having names and the the fact of these swords having like really important and interesting provenance is is fine. It's enough. It, they don't need to be your father's lightsaber. Um, and I think having this in makes it a bit your father's lightsaber. Um, and and I it's just you don't need it here. Aragorn's a grown ass man. He's got other things to be doing. <laughs> Uh, and then next up, we have uh, Elrond saying goodbye to the Fellowship before they set out. Um, and he's telling them that they are bound by no oath. Emily, you've spoken at length <sighs> about the Oath of Feanor back when we did the Council of Elrond episode uh, back almost a year ago, um, a little less than a year ago. Uh, so uh, why don't you uh, why don't you just go off on the Oath of Feanor or the no oath that Elrond uh, proposes here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is beautiful. And I think, you know, as I keep saying, this is this is really a sign that the that this extended edition is engaging more with the text of the books than the theatrical edition is, um, because it brings in it brings in this beautiful component, which is um, which is Elrond as a character that that we barely know, but reaching back into the book that exists, that is there for them to play with and, and, and use as they will, um, to draw out some some um, not just fascinating character work for for Elrond, but some really important sort of plot work uh, for the wider fellowship. And and the fact that um, 
they don't swear oaths to one another um, is so significant because it makes the both the loyalty of Sam um, and the loyalty of Aragorn and and Gimli and Legolas to Merry and Pippin, who are not the ring bearers, um, all that much more impressive because it, it's not about you know men keeping to their their words at, such as is the way with like all these medieval um, uh, uh, stories or medieval esque stories. Um, it is about you know people who are genuinely good doing the right thing because it is the right thing to do. And, and so I love that. Um, but I also love that, um, and I think it is such a successful execution of this. It is this moment where because it makes sense on that plot level. Um, it makes sense on that plot level. And you don't have to have read the books or the Silmarillion to understand why Elrond might be saying that and to get a sort of latter understanding of importance for, for that line, you know, on repeat viewings. But if you have read the books and if you have read the Silmarillion, then it adds this additional layer of of um, of heartfelt character work. It is a deeply sad thing that, that Elrond has to say. And I think it's also a, a really deeply impressive thing as well, because... Um, the Oath of Feanor saw the sons of Feanor go to the ends of the world um, and uh, in pursuit of, of their oath. And that kind of willingness to go to the ends of the earth is exactly what you literally need in, in the, the quest for the ring. Um, but instead of that, Elrond is not demanding an oath. Um, he is allowing his trust. He, he is, you know, treating the, the lack of an oath as a sort of token of his trust in the people that have been chosen um, to to fulfill this quest, um, to do what they must do, to go to the ends of the earth. And so they are going to the ends of the earth, not against their personalities, not against who they are as, a, you know, at, at a spiritual level, like, you know, Mithras and Maglor did um, under the oath of Feanor. They are going because their, their, their hearts and their spirits and their souls can Compel them to go there, and and there's something more impressive and more noble in it. And it's a small throwaway line, but such an incredibly important one. And it does so much work on 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 two different levels. Um, and 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 I think really shows what the kind of richness you can get from adapting a book is if you're really thinking about what book it is that you're adapting. I agree with every bit of that. I would actually say this is my. Second favorite extended edition scene of this film after the Bilbo introduction. Um, like, I literally have no problems with this scene at all and very much like it. Um, it even has a little bit of humor as Alron's listing off the different races as part of the fellowship. Um, but he doesn't say anything about dwarves. He just lumps them under all free folk and Gimli makes a face at him, um, which is, you know, just meant to be a little haha, you know, making fun of the dwarves. But it actually kind of fits. Um, to me, because we do see throughout, especially this movie, that the elves are not very warm to Gimli, or at least not at first. Um, so I am definitely down with that. I also just like the notion of Gandalf saying, you know, the fellowship awaits the ring bearer to take the lead. Um, it just kind of recenters Frodo is the reason they're all doing that. Not like the films have a problem where they lose focus on that. Mm -hmm. But I do like just the explicit saying of that. Frodo, we're here to follow you. Um, and that's this kind of stuff that gets reinforced when he's the one who redirects them to Moria um, or that breaks off on his own with just Sam. So um, I like everything about this scene. I really have no issue with it. And I think I would have just preferred to have this in the um, extended edition yep. or the theatrical edition rather. Yeah, absolutely. 
So now we're on the way to Moria. Um, the biggest stuff here is uh, right before we get to the walls of Moria, um, you know, they're just all kind of passing through some rocks at the feet of the mountain. Um, Gandalf stops Frodo just to tell him to be wary, <laughs> um, which is not really a thing I found a lot of value in. Um, again, this is one of those scenes where you can tell that they probably didn't put the same number of passes on the background and the visual effects. Um, and then also I just... Gandalf's advice isn't new or specific enough to be of value here. And this is coming right after we saw Boromir kind of get entranced by the ring on top of Karadras. Um, so him just telling Frodo, you know, be careful what you do. It just, it, it doesn't do anything for me. It's, it's very short. It's just a couple of seconds, but it's just like, it's one of those more cutting room floor things. And I feel like a scene that they just wanted to really get in there, but couldn't fit into it. Yeah. Yeah, and like it, it's funny because I think it compounds on this problem that I have with the Moria question in Fellowship, which is like, it was all very transparent in the book. Like everybody knew that they had two roads and both of them sucked ass. Um, and that was like never under question. And like Gandalf was never like withholding information for weird reasons. Um, and I think this just compounds upon that. It's great for me specifically because it makes him look like even more of a tit. But like, just it's just one of these things where like you know sim style i kind of get a question mark above my head and then just have to kind of move on from there <laughs> yeah and um even when they do get to the walls of moria and to the gate um there is some more stuff in the extended edition of gandalf yelling at pippin even though his dumb ass can't <laughs> remember how to enter the doors um which I get, you know, you could say, oh, it's setting up what's going to happen with Pippin and Gandalf throughout the three films. But it just, it, again, just feels unnecessary. I feel like the theatrical editions are well paced enough that I, that doesn't bother me. Um, yep. And when we get into Moria itself, there's an extended scene about Mithril, um, which I, again, don't really have any strong feelings for. I don't feel like it adds much, but it kind of works as an extended edition scene um, just because, you know... We don't really talk about Mithril much in the movie. It's just kind of there as Frodo's shirt. So if you want to do something a little bit more in the extended edition, just to do like kind of like a footnote, like, oh, this is what Mithril is. Um, I'm mostly okay with it, even if the scene itself doesn't do too much for me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's also, it's funny because it's one of these things that I kind of would have just rolled my eyes on about three months ago. Um, but ever since I've seen the damage that can be done with Mithril as a plot line in <laughs> other things, um, I'm now more like, wow, wasn't this well done? This was well crafted and well thought of. Excellent. Uh, so that's, that's where I am as a human being now. Yeah. A showing restraint by making Mithril not be vibranium or an infinity <laughs> stone was definitely a positive move. I would say, hmm. Uh, the other big change that stuck out with me at Moria, or big change, sorry, that added uh, footage, is when Frodo and Gandalf are talking, when they are kind of lost and deciding which of the three routes to take uh, in the middle of Moria. And this is where Gandalf explicitly gives us the Smeagol story, when they see Gollum kind of in the lower parts of the mines. Um, I, I actively actually just don't like this. Yep. Um, I kind of like... Frodo dropping. Uh, you used to be no different than a hobbit once in the two towers. Um, I like the implication that Frodo and Gandalf are talking that we don't see as moviegoers, like conversations and stuff happens in the margins, which is stuff I like. Um, so I, I just really don't like Frodo being explicitly told the Smeagol stuff. Um, I just like how it kind of organically comes up in the theatrical edition. Um, and then this is also one of the spots where 
the soundtrack for the theatrical edition of Moria is really finely tuned here. Um, and there's just some weird gaps in the score where the scene just kind of feels very janky to me coming from the theatrical edition. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's also, I think like it is one of the few things I'm glad that they, uh, kept to the extended edition. And to be honest, like you basically, they don't need to include it at all because I think Gollum doesn't look impressive at all here. Um, and he doesn't look like a, a t- technical uh, monstrosity, but also a miracle. And I think waiting to have him be in the distance, in the mist always, and then show up for realsies in the two towers when they've obviously spent a shit ton of time making him look as good as he does is the right move. And it shows the like, level of restraint i think that you need as a filmmaker especially when you're adapting something on a literal epic scale um to to kind of make a successful film and and including him here it to be honest maybe this is a little controversial but i think it shows the signs of unrestraint that ultimately led to to the hobbit films and the mess that they were so yeah, I don't I don't need it. I'd rather not see it. It's fine to just have Gollum be a, a story. Although actually now I've reminded myself that in Lord of the Rings Online, of course, my favorite ever uh, Tolkien adaptation, um, when you're fucking around in Goblin Town, um, you can see a whole bunch of paintings done on the wall, like caveman style paintings done on the wall by the orcs. That's like warning the other orcs about Gollum. Um, and when you're Ooh, at Gollum's great. cave, they basically got a like a this is not a this is not a sacred place kind of sign that like nuclear war thing they've got one of those fucking things on the wall with Gollum looking like a little freak and and then you still don't see Gollum um even if you walk into that cave Gollum ain't hanging out there and and that's I think the level of approach where it's like the you know innuendo but sometimes quite literal innuendo that builds up the fear factor rather than like straight up seeing the little f- f- ball sack looking freak yeah one of my favorite parts of the books is Gollum not being in fellowship, but just how often they'd mention they hear the patter of feet behind them or someone swimming down the river behind them. Um, and I like when they pull that stuff into Fellowship of the Ring, the movie. Um, but I like them just not really engaging with it besides just saying, oh, yeah, that's Gollum. Anyways, let's talk about other stuff. <laughs> um, I like really saving the meat of the Gollum stuff for the two towers when he is, like you say, a fully fledged character. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, I said I would be less negative as we went through this. I, I am not living up to that promise. Hell yeah. Um, I feel like you right now. Yeah. Embrace um, the dark. <laughs> uh, so, I think we're going to hop over next to Lothlorien. Um, and here, uh, when Haldir, you know, kind of arrests the company, for lack of a better word, at the, you know, start of the woods, um, we get an extra scene on one of the flats that's supposed to be like one of the guard outposts. Um, and they kind of talk about how uh, Haldir knows, you know, Legolas because he's from Mirkwood and Aragorn is an elf friend and we've had word of Frodo. Um, but that, you know, and then he's like, you know, some of you else are we don't know you. We don't trust you. You're a dwarf. So we hate you. Um, so it, I don't really have strong up or down opinions on this scene. Um, I do like that they're they do kind of flesh out the tension that Lothlorien has with the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, because that is not something you get at all from the theatrical editions, really, um, other than Gimli talking about the Woods Witch. But, like, you know, there's an extended part in Rohan in the books where when they meet the riders, um, they talk about the Lady Galadriel and, oh, you went into Lothlorien and came out? What the fuck? <laughs> um, and, like, almost none of that makes the movies. So I do like them putting that stuff in here, even if the scene is just kind of whatever to me. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that, and I think it also does a lot to kind of, um, y- uh, n- none of the good guys in Lord of the Rings, I think, are portrayed as like 
unambiguously good like like especially in these movies i think there's there's an extent to which they're all kind of the, the waters around them are always muddied but i think it's really important that the waters around uh Karis galathon are especially muddied not just because i hate galadriel but also because like i think um my ability to hate galadriel in the way that i do is like an integral part of who she is as a character not that i'm an integral part but like the fact that she is this kind of like <laughs> slightly fucked up slightly weird kind of an asshole probably votes for like ukip and like is really keen on like donald trump and like joe biden's border wall that kind of shit like that i think is actually quite an important part of understanding why the world has gone to shit in the way that it has in these stories and so just like adding those little bits and pieces to be like oh she's all fucking weird and she's all racist against the dwarves like that's good and that's great and that's kind of like successful character slash world building that i think um especially in the later films um it, these movies could really do with a little more of yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, and then the other thing I really like about the scene, or I wouldn't say really like, but this is another place where I think the theatrical and extended editions reinforce each other. Um, because later in the Mirror of Galadriel scene in the theatrical edition, um, we see when Frodo looks into the mirror, we see some shots from this scene, which is not in the theatrical edition. Um, so when I was watching the theatrical edition, I'm like, huh, are these shots of Merry and Pippin from the future? Are they from the past? Well, what, what is actually going on here? So it creates some ambiguity, and then you can come to the extended editions like, oh, technically Frodo was seeing what just happened to him the previous night or something, um, which fits in with everything the mirror of Galadriel is. But I like that there's kind of an unambiguity, and then that's kind of resolved by the extended edition. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so as you also mentioned, we get an extended introduction to Karis Galadon um, in this uh, extended edition. It's not a re it's not really a scene in full. It's like 40 seconds. But like these movies are wont to do when they arrive someplace, they tend to have an establishing shot of it, um, like from the outside right before you, you know, kind of enter. And we don't really get that with Lothlorien. They kind of cut straight to walking up the giant trees um, after Haldir takes them in. So I like just having the extra establishing shot. And unlike everything else I've said about this uh, set of, or these sets of scenes, I actually think this CGI looks mostly finished. Like it doesn't stand out as like an albatross compared to the rest of the movie for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's also, it, it does a bit more of differentiating the locations. Like not to say that like Lothlorien has the potential of getting lost in the kind of world of locations that we have, but it feels like such a drastic heel turn from what we've seen in the Shire. And I think just kind of anything that adds to that and anything that really makes us have that kind of uh you know the 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 sepia to technicolor moment i think is always a good thing yeah i think it works as a great contrast to the shire where everything is kind of holes in the ground whereas here everything's built up into the trees but then also a nice uh, contrast to rivendell which felt very much more just like standard not standard but just like architecture houses and stuff whereas what's happening here in Lothlorien feels like a altogether different type of city um so it like creates some of that difference in the elves that generally gets flattened in the movies um so i like that they're able to at least kind of add little bits here and there to show that not all elves are the same yeah and this the swap from i mean it is in the theatrical edition as well but the swap from like warm tones for revendell to cool tones for uh for lothorian i think is also really really helpful in distinguishing the elves from one another mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
when we get to the lament of Gandalf, um, we get uh, Sam's firework verse. Um, I think we talked about this in the Tolkien Tolkien section when we uh, discussed uh, Lothlorien at first. Yeah. But basically, the elves are singing their lament for Gandalf in Quenya, I believe. Yeah. Um, and then Sam says, "Oh, I hope they have a verse about his fireworks." And then he like essentially like freestyles a limerick <laughs> right there that I think is really cute. Um, I'm glad they adapted it. And I think in the books, uh, the elves kind of snicker at him a little bit. Um, And that's completely taken out of here. So it just kind of played earnestly as Sam kind of giving his own little eulogy to uh, Gandalf and his fireworks. I I I like everything about this, but that tends to go with everything Sean Astin does in these three films. Um, He's just great at it. So Yeah. And I think it also gives a sense of like Sam has more within him. Uh, than than being just kind of the parochial country gardener um, and and like his kind of the depth of his emotion that he can do what you know Mary and Pippin are also sad about Gandalf and Frodo is especially also sad about Gandalf and they're not bursting you know they're not busting a rhyme uh, in the way that Sam is and I think like the fact that 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 kind of fount of emotion is is obvious within Sam in these scenes is so crucial to to the Sam that we will see especially at the end of Two Towers and start well all of Return of the King. Before we get to Galadriel's gift giveaway bonanza, <laughs> um, we have this little scene with Celeborn and Aragorn. And let me just say, one of the reasons I will maybe defend Fellowship Extended Edition is we get a lot more Celeborn. Oh, yeah. Um, I think me and you talked about this offline, Emily, that right around this part in this Extended Edition and all the Extended Editions is when my, like attention starts to wane a little bit um, just because at this point you're three and a half hours into the movie. Um, So in our day and age of ADHD, it's just impossible to pay attention to one thing for that long. So near the end of the extended editions, I start kind of losing my mind a little bit. So I somehow never remember that Celeborn has like a big chunk of dialogue here. And I actually just like the fact that Celeborn has given dialogue more than necessarily anything he actually says. Yeah. Well, this is, God, justice for Caliborn, man. Um, I like I had not it had not occurred to me that like outside of the context of these movies that he was like considered an overlooked kind of figure because he's quite like he's not you know he's not Galadriel levels in the book, but it's not like he's a quiet guy. Like he's not like nobody in the books, and and um I think like before uh before the summer the disaster this summer. Um, like no one in the fandom was treating Caliborn like he was like Galadriel's weirdo plus one. Um, and and I, I don't think these movies necessarily treat him like he's um Galadriel's weirdo plus one, but he doesn't have much to do in the extended edition. Um and and I'm now like or sorry, in the theatrical edition. And I'm now like infinitely more grateful to the extended edition because I think this is kind of him like being cool. Um, and Caliburn is like a massive fuck off racist who is also occasionally cool, kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger in that way. And um, God, please don't sue me for libel. Um, but like, <laughs> oh boy. Um, but like, I, I think there's like a, you know, that kind of gets lost when he gets reduced onto the kind of meme variant of, of who is that guy standing next to Galadriel. Um, and, and I like that we get so much here to show him as being this kind of figure of his own um, and I wish that that would be the image of Celeborn that everyone would preserve in their minds uh, before we get to Rings of Power season 2 eventually I, I, I honestly still can't believe that Rings of Power had Galadriel married to Celeborn the whole time and it's just a throwaway <laughs> line near the end of the season 
Like they didn't think that was worth mentioning once. Yep. <laughs> oh my god. Um, I guess Mormons and their relationship to marriage is weird, <laughs> so you can't put <laughs> can't put too much stock into that. But yeah, no, Celeborn's great here. He is very much, um, what's it called? Like savvy and like giving useful advice. He's giving Aragorn like pretty relevant intel. Um, he's actually saying like orcs are at our borders, and I think he gives some other things. Or and like the Urukai have been spotted, um, you know, marching eastward or something like that. Like it's actually pretty solid world building. It's pretty well delivered. Um, I'm pretty much just a fan of the scene, and he gives Aragorn that like curved dagger that becomes part of his core repertoire going forward yep. um the one that he sticks in lurtz's leg <laughs> at the end of the film um and then bats away with the sword um i i honestly like everything about this scene i like that they take Celeborn seriously and he's not just a joke like i don't i don't want to say i dislike anything with how he's handled in the theatrical editions mostly because galadriel is barely in the theatrical editions yeah like Kate Blanchett has like probably like four quality minutes of screen time over the three movies. <laughs> like if you combine all her scenes. So like Celeborn getting less than that doesn't really bother me per se. But then again, I do like the extended edition being like, hey, this guy who only says like three lines, why don't we give him some like like one meaty scene? Um, and it's actually a really good scene. So I'm all for this. Yeah, it's like um Kate Blanchett as Gladriel, Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, Handshake, uh being the weirdest serial killer you've ever seen in a movie. Oh, man. Imagine if he strung up Aragorn by his guts, like from a tree, like uh, Hannibal does to that one prison guard. Uh, that'll be a good transition into the next scene. Uh, Jesus Christ. My gift for you, Legolas, is a bow of the Galadrim, worthy of the skill of our woodland kin. These are the daggers of the Nolnurim. They have already seen service in war. Do not fear, young Peregrine Took. You will find your courage. And for you, Samwise Gamgee, elven rope made of heathline. Thank you, my lady. Have you run out of those nice shiny daggers? And what gift would a dwarf ask of the elves? Nothing. Except to look upon the lady of the Galadrim one last time. For she is more fair than all the jewels beneath the earth. <laughs> no. No. Actually, uh, there was one thing. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. I'm talking nonsense. It's quite impossible. Stupid. I have nothing greater to give than the gift you already bear. Amelethdin, the Antiquil Arwen and Domiel, Pigitha. Anidoni e Broniatha, Ara e Periatha, Atharimethi de Damarhan. Anidon. Ikiratha, Navalan. That choice is yet before her. You have your own choice to make, Aragorn. 
to rise above the height of all your fathers since the days of Elendil, or to fall into darkness with all that is left of your kin. Namari. Narathna Imoigere. Dan. Uveritham Elefsar. Farewell, Frodo Baggins. I give you the light of Erenil, our most beloved star. when all other lights go out. I have taken my worst wound at the Sparting. Having looked my last upon that, which is fairest. Oh, henceforth I will call nothing fair unless it be her gift to me. What was her gift? I asked her for one hair from her golden head. She gave me three. All right, so sorry for that long sound clip, but one of probably the most famous of the extended edition scenes is we get the full giving of gifts that Galadriel has for the Fellowship. In the theatrical edition, we only really hear about the light of Arendil that's given to Frodo, um, specifically because that will become plot important when we get to Shelob's cave. But here we go through all of them, um, and I'm not going to recount them all, but like Eric or Legolas levels up his bow. Uh, I forget what a bunch of other people get. <laughs> Sam gets some rope, um, which becomes relevant to um, the beginning of the Two Towers um, and is part of a Two Towers extended edition scene. So that's one of the places where, look, they built something into this extended edition and then paid it off kind of in the Two Towers extended edition, which is something I like. Um, and of course, there's a big Gimli thing. But before I go on, I'll let Emily talk a little bit. Oh, it's going to be scene. about the Gimli thing. So <laughs> yeah, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. yeah, do it. Do it. So, oh, God. OK, so I love this. I love this so much. Um, I do not care about Gimli in particular. Like, he's fine. I have no vengeance against him. This is not like the start of an Aragorn crusade against him. <laughs> um, but I just like could not give two shits about him otherwise. And certainly don't care about Galadriel. But I love this scene. I love it so much. And I love it so much in the book. And it's like such a... I don't know. It, it, it symbolizes for me in a very weird and kind of backwards way everything that I love about about Tolkien and about the Lord of the Rings and and all the auxiliary material. Um, but it, the reason this is so so Gimli's gift, um, from Galadriel, he he initially rejects her offer of, of a gift. Um, she's like, "What would you have?" And he says, "Nothing. Uh, just to look upon you once more before I go." Um, and um, Galadriel is so tickled at the fact that that uh, a dwarves who I'm sure her husband has said loads of times, Alec Jones style, are all greedy fucks who are just here to steal all of our stuff. Um, she's so tickled by the fact that um, that this dwarf, um, when given the opportunity to ask for anything from you know all of her riches, all of her worldly knowledge, everything that she's got as this. Um, immense uh, immortal being. Um, the only thing he asks for is to to look upon her. And so he flatters her beauty. And she's so tickled by that, that she does something really interesting that is kind of, 
it, it does have some kind of context for readers in the book, but it's also, I think, increasingly a, a kind of thing that has almost no context um, for people because it's not a thing we do anymore. But she offers up three strands of her hair. Now, on the face of it, this is very much in the sort of vein of um, sort of classic medieval tokens. Um, you know, when knights would ride out, you know, the, the kind of medieval legend that, that women, um, that their lady loves would bestow upon them a token that could be like a flag of some sort, like a scarf or a tie. Um, but it could also be strands of hair. And of course, like the giving of locks of hair is something that, that really just sort of um, marks like romantic history uh, since basically since we started recording it, people used to cut off their hair, like their hair or the hair of their loved ones and, and keep it as a sign of remembrance of who they who these people are and, and love that sort of thing kind of like you'd keep your kids pictures in, in your wallet people would do that with hair it's it's increasingly a thing that's a little strange there so on, on, on the face of it there's that and that's really nice context for it that that's such a uh, kind of um olive branch between the the elves of uh, of lothorian and, and the dwarves and and on the face of it that's cool but then there's this added depth to it which is that um a galadriel back when she lived in 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 valinor um had a, an uncle uh, who went by the name of feanor and feanor had caused some caused some issues but he was also an incredible smith um and a jewel smith and he created these gems called the silmarils which uh, we've talked about a lot on this podcast but um the silmarils um didn't just start as an idea for the Silmarils. Um, Feanor sought out, um, allegedly, to create something that captured the sort of beauty and the brightness of, of Valinor. And the place that he saw the beauty and the brightness of Valinor was in Galadriel's hair. And so he asked her for a strand of her hair, and three times Galadriel denied him. Uh, and ultimately, Feanor captured the light of the, the trees, uh, Laurelin and Telperion, uh, and used that to to create the the the, the Silmarils. Um, but uh, but the original intention was to use Galadriel's hair, and so you know, had Galadriel been more forthcoming to her uncle with her hair, uh, which is a hell of a sentence to have to say, um, the, the the light of the Silmarils might in fact have been generated by her hair, and and all of the horrible horrible things that <laughs> happened in Valinor may not at all have actually happened because the light of Laurelin and Telperion um, might not have been uh dimmed or it might not well it sh certainly could have still been dimmed but it might not have been as important or as crucial in in sort of creating a dividing line between um the the valar and the noldorian elves uh, so so there's that um and, and that's really interesting but but the fact um of of why it's important to galadriel is it shows two things it shows galadriel's character growth in some ways and that she has become someone who is less concerned with um sort of her interpersonal tiffs uh, than she is with with sort of the wider world around her. But it also shows that um, there was a possible universe in which Feanor could have had what he wanted, um, depending on who you ask, uh, either if he hadn't been such a tit, a chronic tit his entire life, or um, if Galadriel had been kind of nicer or whatever the fuck. It's obviously that Feanor just couldn't behave himself. And if he'd maybe behaved himself for five minutes, uh, things wouldn't have gone wrong. Uh, but 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 that's interesting. And that's another one of these things that makes it into the scene because in the extended editions, because you can genuinely tell that they've thought about the material that they're adapting here and thought about how they can do something that will add richness to the story on a sort of uh, incredibly rudimentary plot level, but then also thought about how they could adapt, do make an adaptational choice that would um, add something to the the source material or bring something in from the source material in a way that would be really rewarding for people who knew that. And and that's I think the really good kind of mindset in in adapting something like this. And it's nice to see that there. 
Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. And this is also, I'd say, of the extended edition scenes, the one that feels like, I don't know, most cinemafied, or as in like they really took care in terms of how they were going to tell this as part of the movie. Um, because most of the extended edition scene here is just kind of like going through a list like Legolas, you get this, Mary and Pippin, you get daggers and cloaks, and you just kind of work down the line. Um, so it's, you know, just kind of, I don't know, very functional for a second, but they don't actually reveal Gimli getting the hairs until they're on the river. Um, like during the lineup, Gimli says he wants nothing, but then when Legolas and Gimli are in the boat, um, Legolas asks Gimli about it, and then John Reese davies for as much as he sucks in real life, he gives a really, really just, I don't know, moving delivery of, you know, I asked for one hair, she gave me three, and you can see like a little tear coming out of his eye, and it cuts to Legolas, and he's smiling like, oh, the elf and the dwarf are becoming friends. <laughs> Like, I really, really like how they specifically shot and, like, structured the scene on top of just all the adaptation goodness that they brought into it. Yeah. Um, this is an A-plus, no no, no notes, uh, would have included in the theatrical if I could, because I think it's brilliant. Yeah, and, and also I think it shows, it adds a, Gimli, I think, in the movies is quite silly character, and there's not really much there to him. And this, I think, that he is, it has somehow fallen ass backwards into being one of the most important sort of bridge builders in the early days of, of the ring war i mean they don't even fully know that the ring war is happening just now they kind of do but they don't really and and gimli is this guy who's forged this alliance out of uh out of a uh, 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 two people who have been sort of split in twain for a very very long time um and and that adds a lot of depth to gimli's character and it adds a lot of depth to his relationship with legolas um and 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 to his position in the fellowship at large for the rest of these movies and i think it is a, it is a real loss that it doesn't show up in in the final cut yeah. Uh, in sports parlance, we would call Gimli a glue guy. Nice. Um, just someone who kind of holds everything together and is just kind of not the most talented of on your team, but he just like he has good vibes and like that good vibes like just plays. And I think that very much is Gimli of these movies. As little as he is as a character, um, I do think he has really good vibes. Yes. Um, and none of those apparently come from John Rhys-Davies. So. <laughs> oh, boy. So the last big uh, kind of addition we're going to talk about is when they're on the Great River, or rather when they're making camp alongside the river. Um, this would be before they arrive at the Argonath. And uh, first we see uh, Gollum floating by on a log. <laughs> uh, that's something I like. Like I said, I kind of like like Solid Snake Gollum sneaking behind the Fellowship. <laughs> um, as much as you can sneak that in without necessarily like spending five minutes talking about him, um, like I'm all for that kind of stuff. But then we get into an Aragorn-Boromir debate, um, basically about which path to take. Should we take the ring through Minas Tirith, um, which is kind of an adaptation of a book storyline that they don't really bother with at all in the movie. So I, it feels a little out of place here because this wasn't really a debate. Um, you know, it is kind of a through line in the book about like, which way are we going to go once we hit the river? Um, that really is never discussed here. Um, so this just feels like a little extra. Let's make Boromir even more of a bad guy kind of thing. Um, and Aragorn be like, I would not take it to your city if I had any choice or whatever. Um, it feels like it's just kind of doing redundant characterization and adding in a choice that they didn't really build up to or pay off. Um, so it really 
I don't know, just doesn't do anything for me, I guess. Yeah, no, it I, it is kind of pointless. It's just kind of, I, it's one of these things we've actually talked about in some of the previous episodes, how the, these movies are really good at avoiding conflict for conflict's sake. And like, it is something that is is definitely vamped in the book. It is something that is present in the book, but it is contextualized, as you say, much better compared to here. And here it just feels like adding conflict for conflict's sake. However, it is very, very funny to me how you wrote it in the show notes as the Aragorn-Boromir debate, because I've just been reading it in my head as the Lincoln Douglas debate about a million times, <laughs> and I'm imagining this is a far funnier scene than I know it actually is. <laughs> oh man! Oh, maybe we can do a Patreon episode and rewrite that entire debate from the point of view of Aragorn and Boromir. Um, and you can be Boromir; I'll fall on the Aragorn sword and be him. Uh, yeah. So uh, maybe we'll do that for our next Patreon episode. Amazing. Um, I guess. I mean, we didn't talk about every little uh, scene or addition in uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Was there anything we glossed over that you wanted to add or maybe any summary thoughts about the extended edition of Fellowship? Um, so so one of the funny scenes, it's not funny at all. It's so stupid. I don't know why I care about it. But there's one little addition when they are on the way to Rivendell is they do a slight, I think it's like a two second um, addition, uh, which is the Midgewater Marshes. They give a little bit more context for the Midgewater Marshes. And this is like, it is so immaterial to the plot. It's so irrelevant. Nobody needs it. Nobody cares. But like, I need it and I care because it shows again that like engagement with what is actually going on. And yeah, it's kind of a dumb Easter egg in some ways and like whatever. But like, in comparison to the things that are added in the Fellowship of the Rings extended editions versus the things that are added in the Two Towers extended editions and the Return of the King extended editions, I think it's that kind of little clip, that little addition there, um, summarizes the kind of W that like fucking uh, Fellowship takes over the like massive L's that uh, the Two Towers and Return of the King take. Um, in that like they are using the extended editions to fulfill more things from the book. And the the theatrical edition is the moviegoers edition of Fellowship of the Ring. And if you want to see the best fucking movie you've ever seen, you go see Fellowship of the Ring theatrical edition. And if you want to see an adaptation of The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, at least for Fellowship of the Ring, you go see the Fellowship of the Ring extended edition. And that kind of <laughs> saga era voice, clarity of purpose, I think is so <laughs> integral to how like the theatrical edition versus the extended editions should have worked. And I think if they'd kept that in there the whole way through, um, then I would be far more in favor of the theatrical or the extended editions of the latter two movies. Um, and, 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 it shows, I think Fellowship of the Ring shows that there was that spark of that there. Um, but but I think ultimately the kind of narrative decisions that they made um, in, in adapting Two Towers the way that they did in Return of the King as a knock-on effect of that um, ultimately means that I think a lot of their kind of narrative choices got ahead of them before they had a rationale to explain the hows and whys and linkages to the books. So they ended up not being able to do it in the same way. But but I think um, it, is, it is that kind of um, sense of uh, I guess demarcation d division between what each uh, edition is doing that I think makes Fellowship of the Ring extended edition uh, so so great to me and so rewatchable and so like kind of happy fuzzy feeling. So uh, Fellowship of the Ring extended edition released in November of 2002. So this would be about 11 months after the theatrical edition and basically just a month and a half ahead of the Two Towers theatrical release. Um, so it was very effectively like timed in terms of rebuilding hype just as the new one was about to get to theater. I do wonder what if they had like 
done the trilogy and then maybe a year after really come back and take a look at the extended editions and seeing how the theatrical editions were received so well and if they would have made some different choices. Um, I've already talked about the scouring of the Shire and Return of the King, but I really would have enjoyed if they like tried to make like one big selling point in each of the extended editions. Like this is the version that has this. Yes. Um, like in the two towers, like extended edition, that's where they should have maybe just kind of redone the entire window on the West scene. They did the theatrical edition. Yeah. Or maybe they cast like do some stunt casting and work in Erkenbrand a little bit somewhere. <laughs> like ac- actually just do something specifically to sell it as opposed to just some more footage tacked on to like existing tree beard stuff or existing, Aomer stuff or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, again, this is all with the value of hindsight. Like the fact that the the theatrical trilogy was such a success and then everyone loved the extended editions as a whole uh, generally speaks to their quality despite what I may try to propagandize <laughs> on here. Um, I do think they're still like good, good movies. But again, I just kind of think the theatrical editions are the perfect distillation into cinema and the extended editions I think are intentionally a little more navel gazy. I just wish they got kind of that like finish that the theatrical edition did. I think that would fix a lot of my problems with uh, the extended editions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's also funny because in some ways, like the extended editions as they are, are at least in fellowship are kind of a, 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 a preemptive attempt to answer a lot of my gripes with the fellowship uh, theatrical edition. And like, I think you are right. I think if they just kind of go, gone whole hog on that and just been like, this is the book version in the extended edition, or this is the more punchier kind of uh, action-y version, I guess, of the extent of the theatrical edition, like that would have, I think, made it more of a thing now. And I think in some ways, the, the extended editions as they are um, today here now, um, they're kind of more just like a, a an early entry into the kind of just obsession with content more hours of content like people now just kind of want 24 hours of their favorite characters just fucking around on a soundstage instead of like an actual movie or a story and it's not to say people who love the extended editions are like weightless fools or whatever like i also just want 24 hours of like wedge and dilly's fucking around on a soundstage that would be great but like i think the extended editions as they are now kind of presage in a lot of ways where we are going in that that sort of entertainment um uh, a kind of trajectory content mill content churn um and if it if as you say if only they'd had a clear sense of why and what the fuck these extended editions actually were um maybe maybe we could have avoided some of that kind of um cultural expectation yeah i think and this is a totally valid response whenever i get on my anti-extended edition soapbox the most common response is people just want to spend more time in this world. And I get that. Just Um, read the books. God. (laughs) But it's like, I see that. But then I, when I see like some really shitty six hour star Wars or Marvel show on Disney plus, and then I see people defending Kenobi because, well, it's just six more hours of star (laughs) Wars. And I'm like, no, I I am not going to give you the benefit of the doubt on that one. Um, we can still have standards within the context of things we love. I don't think that is a wrong thing. In fact, I think it's a very solid thing. So I feel like that's um, actually like the slogan of this podcast. Now we can still have standards in the context of things we love. Like, yep, that's it. (laughs) Sold. Yeah. Uh, so I think that'll wrap us up, uh, because it's a Patreon episode. We don't really do anything special at the end. Um, 
My name's Manu. I've been Manuclear Bomb. Uh, we're doing that heavy Song of Ice and Fire shit over at <laughs> Nauticast ASOIAF. Uh, please check us out there. Uh, we will have just dropped our Jamie 5, A Storm of Swords episode, which is my one of my favorite chapters. It's the one where Jamie tells the story of how he became the Kingslayer, kind of upends his character, upends the narrative. So it's an episode I'm really proud of. So if you have any interest in A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, um, this is one of the few times I'll specifically pitch an episode I just did. Nice. Um, and I have been Emily, uh, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where I am on Twitter, where I will also be asking all of the hot ones I see walk by for three strands of their hair. <laughs> uh, giving a shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethroglier and Dretheon, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Um, bye. <laughs> all right, I'm stopping. <laughs> <laughs> 